Hi, my name is Jess and welcome to James World Fat. You know the path to enlightenment can be a perilous one and clear objective guideposts are few and far between. My sincere hope for you is that these podcasts by our teacher James Parkinson will, as they have for me, meet your desire to move forward on that path towards true peace and true happiness. I had the most difficult time trying to figure out what to name this talk. I wanted to call it something, you know, snappy for the podcasts. I don't know why. I guess it's just a hangover from the old days. Because what I want to talk about today is it's kind of two things. It's but it's hard to really find a title for it. I like to have the titles be short one or two words because once you add on the, the number of the podcast and so on and so on, the space, it starts to get long and cumbersome. And I think, well, it needs to be just, you know, I have all these self-imposed limitations. <laughs> but it's what makes life interesting. Think about it. It's like a game is defined by the rules. And what good is, like I've said before, what good is it to go to Las Vegas? You go to Las Vegas and you take like $1,000 and you gamble. And you win $10 million. But you're getting ready to leave and you're going out the door and they stop you at the door and they go, we were just kidding. And they take the $10 million and they leave you with your 1000 Well, we wouldn't like that. But we wouldn't mind so much if we lost the whole 1000 we're on our way out and they said, oh, we were only kidding and they gave us our $1,000 back. The rules of the game are flexible according to what pleases us. But that's not what makes a game. This work defines a man, first of all, by what he eats, what he breathes, and where he lives. You think about it, these are the rules of our game. What we eat, what we breathe, and where we live. We live here on this planet under 48 orders of laws that define what we eat and what we breathe. But it doesn't define it for all of life on this planet, not in the same way. All living animals are defined in the same way. A fish is different from a man because he lives in water, breathes in a different way, and eats a different food. But essentially, he's defined by what he eats, what he breathes, and where he lives. You don't see fish out here very often. You know, there are none of them sitting in the chairs. Nobody, no fish sitting in. So we don't see fish around where we hang out because they're different, because they live in a different place, they breathe in a different way, and they eat different food. The work teaches that in this great machine of organic life, everything eats everything else. And the work also teaches further that the whole universe is based on the idea of eating and being eaten. I'm not sure I like that. The whole universe is like, this is the way it is everywhere. Everything is eating something else. Well, that's what the work says. I can't verify that, so I don't worry about it. Ask yourself for a minute, can you live without eating something? No. That's one of the things we learn, first of all. One of the first things we learn when we, when we, come, into this, when we come into this plane, into this planet. We learn that we have to eat, and pretty regularly. It's not like a once every couple year thing. It's something we generally have to do a couple of times a day. And some people like to do it like all day, you know, kind of like cows. They just kind of like to graze, just slowly, you know, graze all day, you know, go around, hit the refrigerator, hit the, hit the, the pantry, have a little snack here, or there's some peanuts there. And, oh, well, this would be nice. I'll have this energy drink. Well, I'll have this and I'll have, and they just kind of float through life grazing. The sensitive film of organic life is fed, first of all, by the great energy from the sun. But then it eats something else to exist. So 
We know that this film, this thin film coating our planet that, that the work calls organic life, we know that it's fed, first of all, by the sun. The energy that comes from the sun creates the tiny organisms that are the beginning of life, the beginning of the food chain. And then things move on up the food chain and one thing eats another thing. So we're defined by what we eat, breathe, and where we live. But let's look at it psychologically rather than literally. It's easy to understand it literally. We look, we say, yes, I have to have something to eat. Yes, I have to have air to breathe. Yes, I live here. This is my address. It's on my driver's license, on my ID card. It's where people can find me. This is my telephone number. I'll be on the other end of the phone. You'll hear people say, they'll leave and they'll say, well, I'll be on the other end of the phone. What do you eat psychologically? What do you breathe psychologically? Where do you live psychologically? These are questions that we really need to be asking ourselves in this work. In a work sense, these, these are important questions for us. Suppose you're fond of eating negative emotions. It's kind of like cheesecake. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. You know, it's not something you really think much about. It's just something that you, you see a piece of cheesecake and you order it. Or there's a piece of cheesecake on the table and you just pick up a spoon or a fork and you oh, wow. And you just start to eat it. You don't really think about it. It's a mechanical thing. It's a mechanical reaction. Oh, yeah, I like cheesecake. Oh, yeah. And we know that that works because if you watch television at all, there are a tremendous amount of food commercials. Mm -hmm. And there are food painters, people who their whole career is about photographing food. Their whole life is about painting and photographing food. You see, it's not real food as a rule that is photographed. It's retouched, painted, sometimes it's wax, sometimes it's plastic, sometimes it's food, but then they... They, they actually spray paint it. They'll take a hamburger and then they'll spray paint it so that it'll look more appealing to people when it's photographed. So let's say you're fond of eating negative emotions. Let's say, let's just suppose that you love long, unhappy trains of thought. Ooh, there's a new train pulling into the station. Oh, I'm going to be so unhappy about this one, you know. And we don't think, oh, yes, I really like to do that. But as we begin to observe ourselves, we see that we do have these habits. Suppose you like hearing negative stories. Well, how about uh, unpleasant rumors about other people? They make you feel a little, you know, some people feel a little like better. They hear an unpleasant rumor. You know, did you know, did you hear so-and-so went bankrupt? Oh, did they really? I knew, I knew it. Just the way they were spending money. You know, they were spending money like, like, it, was, like it grows on trees. Oh, I don't do that. So I'm not bankrupt. They're bankrupt, but I'm not bankrupt. I'm better. So a lot of our enjoyment of unpleasant remarks about other people, unpleasant rumors, negative rumors about other people, a lot of our enjoyment about it is we get to feel like we're better. It's a pretty good feeling. We like feeling like we're better. Psychologically, some people feast on unpleasant impressions, negative remarks, and only that. That's what their life is about. Hey, let's watch uh, Geraldo. Let's watch Jerry Springer. Let's watch, you know, let's watch you and him fight. Let's watch divorce court or let's watch, watch people be nasty to each other. So they feast on unpleasant things like negative talking. They're attracted to unhappy, uneasy, discordant situations. Their life is full of drama. We can all include ourselves in this, even if we just visit these neighborhoods internally. 
Even if we don't have our full-time address there, we've got a summer home. <laughs> you know, I got an apartment. I have a condo at the beach where I go, and I can just watch the negative waves roll in. This is their food. They breathe in, not truth, but false things, lies, unpleasant things. They just marinate in it, soak in it, breathe it in, think about it, live in it. Let's look at where we live inside ourselves. Try to understand your psychology distinct from the external world of space. We should continually make this effort in the work. When we begin to observe ourselves, we see that we have a psychological space in us that is distinct from physical space. You can see that there are places that you can go inside yourself and be quiet. There are places you can go inside yourself and be really upset and angry. There are places that you can go inside of yourself where you feel comforted, like you're in a cocoon. There are places you can go inside of yourself where you feel agitated and on edge. So we begin to see that there are places inside of us distinct from external places where there's certain spaces, there's a certain atmosphere, a certain air, a certain food there. This is what I want you to start to think about. We begin to understand what it means to be in a bad place in ourselves, like a dark, evil street full of robbers and mother rapers and father rapers and bad people. You know, there are neighborhoods that it's not safe to go at night. You know that, right? Yes. There are cities that have certain sections that the police don't even like to go to. They never go alone. They always go with two in the car. And they have a radio, and they always know that their friends are on the other end of the radio that they can call and get back up in so many minutes because it's such a dangerous place. Because there are people there who do bad things, who feed on unpleasant, nasty things all the time who breathe that air, who live in that neighborhood, who do that all the time. There are people on this planet who are not nice. People on this planet who, who are not compassionate, who are not generous, who are not loving. People on this planet who are stuck in a slum and they don't know how to get out. And all the people around them are all stuck there too. And they're frustrated and angry. And they're doing mean, nasty things to each other. There are places like that in you psychologically. The most dangerous place that we can be is the evil place in ourselves, surrounded by very bad eyes, evil eyes. If you have observed yourself at all properly, you're beginning to see that you have very evil eyes, very bad eyes inside of you that mean you no good whatsoever and don't mean any good for anyone else. They don't care about anyone. They only want their way and they don't care who is damaged for them to get their way. It doesn't matter to them. They, they take no thought of that. We must be very careful how we behave around eyes like that. Just like you'd have to be careful how you behaved in a gang neighborhood if you weren't in the gang. Or if you're in a gang and you get caught in another gang's territory. You have to be very careful about how you behave. There are times when you have to be very silent, very quiet. There are times when you have to be very tactful how you talk to the eyes. Think about it. And I want you to think about it this way so that you can see that, yes, there is a psychological world inside of us that is distinctly different from the world outside, but it correlates. In fact, it's frightening how it correlates. The parallel is frightening. We have to understand that every devil 
and angel is already in us in our psychological country and that we access this psychological country through self-observation. It's our ticket in to the Colosseum, to the stadium, as it were. You got self-observation, you can get in to this internal neighborhood and observe it and map it, map the city, see the towns, see the trees, see the hills, see the low spots, see where the water is, see where the good eyes are and the bad eyes are, see where the strong eyes are and the weak eyes are, see where the poor eyes are and the rich eyes are. And we've got to map the cities, the forests, the deserts of this vast land through self-observation. We've got to do it intelligently and carefully, the same way that we would examine slums. They're neighborhoods that you would not go to without taking proper precautions. A lot of proper precautions. There's some you won't go to at night. There's some you've never been to. They're there, and eyes come from there to where you live. If you're mugged in a bad neighborhood, people want to know why you go there. Why do you go there where, where these dangerous people are? Why do you hang out in places like that? It's not your job. You're not a police officer. Why do you do that? Yet, psychologically, we go to neighborhoods inside of ourselves where we're mugged all the time. We're robbed of everything valuable. You lose your watch, you lose your wallet, you lose your credit cards, you lose your identity. You lose everything in these neighborhoods, but you keep going back. Astounding. Astounding. You know that when you go to the neighborhood where the angry eyes are, where the road rage eyes are, that you lose your cool, you lose everything, you lose your peace, you lose all that you've been working on. It's all gone. Everything is taken from you. But you keep going back. And you keep going back in the same way. It wasn't my fault. They kidnapped me and took me there. I was just driving down the road and this guy pulled out in front of me and, and, and then the next thing I know I was in this neighborhood kidnapped and they were mugging me and taking everything from me and all my peace of mind was gone and I was screaming and yelling and gesticulating out the window at this guy. And I was doing 80 or 90 miles an hour chasing him down trying to cut in front of him. People do that. You drive on the freeways, you see them. You see them when you're not one of them. We're so asleep. We're so dead to our own inner state that we don't recognize what the work teaches about our inner country and how closely it parallels our outer world. That life really is consciousness. That the people you have in your life are the people you hang out with inside of yourself. You're not satisfied with these people? Look around you in the room. Yeah, look around you in the room. These are the people that you have in your life. How, how is that for you? Yeah, well, okay. We must become aware through personal work on ourselves. Remember when you were in this slum before? See, this is what work memory is about. It's about remembering when you were in this slum before. It's about remembering when you were with these eyes before. It's about remembering what these eyes are up to so that you stop going with them. Patty was talking to Deborah this morning and asking her about her trip. And Patty was, you know, very sweetly socially mechanically talking to Deborah. In other words, Patty wasn't there. There was just this little social machine. And Deborah said, oh, it rained a lot. And Patty said, oh, it did? Well, no, Patty, it didn't rain at all. I just said that to see what you would say. In other words, Patty was out to lunch. She was just having this little mechanical conversation, clear mechanical talking, nothing going on. She wasn't there. She's talking to, there's a person in front of her, but she wasn't there present with the person. She didn't know who that person was and she wasn't listening to the person. She was just being social, being polite. 
giving to someone what she wants people to give to her. But then when we do give that to her, she's not satisfied with it because she knows it's mechanical and there's nobody there. It's just a ritual. Yes? And so I said something to her about it. And she stopped and she caught herself. She said, thank you. This is what self-observation is about. It's about you catching yourself in the middle of that, not someone else coming along and catching you. It's about you catching yourself and going, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this slum inside myself. I don't need to be in this neighborhood. I don't, want to, I don't want to be with these eyes. I want to wake up here. But we're asleep, dead to our own inner state. We must become more aware through personal work on ourselves. We must learn when to shift our position internally. See, this is another thing. Everything inside of us is changing all the time. But we don't recognize this because we're sleeping and we are not seeing the changes that are occurring and we don't see when it's time to shift our position. Everything inside of us is shifting mechanically without our awareness. But we are not adapting to the changing situation. As we learn to remember ourselves, when we find ourselves in a bad place internally, we learn the importance of silence and tact toward ourselves, toward the eyes in us. You are the problem. You contain the problem. You contain the problem of the world. What's the problem of the world? I don't know what it is, but you contain it. I know that. What's the problem of my world? Well, I don't know what it is, but I contain it. I know that. And when I stumble on it, I will stumble on it outside or I will stumble on it inside, depending on if I'm being observant or not. If I'm being observant, I'll stumble on it inside. If I'm not being observant, I'll stumble on it outside. A place that was harmless yesterday inside of us may be dangerous today. We think that we can get away with being the same, with doing the same thing we did last week. We think that being silent inside of ourselves today will work because being silent inside of ourselves yesterday worked. No. No, what works is being awake, not mechanically setting things up and then living according to the mechanical ritual. And that was my example with Pat and Deborah. She was mechanically participating in this ritual rather than being present with the person. We can't understand about different eyes in us if we can't understand psychological space. If you can't understand this idea of an entire country, an entire world in you, if you can't understand that, you're not going to understand this concept of many different eyes that go to make you up. You've got to see the vastness of this space inside of you, of your psychological country. Let's just take it as a planet. Let's not get out there too far. But let's just look at it as the world. You may not have traveled around the whole world, but it affects you. What happens in Japan affects you. This weather that we're enjoying these past few days is from a hurricane, it's the result for us of a hurricane down in the Yucatan Peninsula, down south. And now we're smacked with this hot, muggy weather, which is highly unusual for us. But it, we're affected by it, even though it happened thousands of miles away. Which eyes are nearest to you now? It's okay to look. It's okay to look right now and see which eyes are nearest to you right now. Which eyes are nearest to you right now? What are these eyes like? And it's just like looking around the room. Well, which eyes are nearest to me now? Well, these eyes are nearest to me now. Well, what are they like? Well, they're like sleeping. <laughs> and laughing. And, you know, some are paying attention. Some are 
drifting off in their own world, doing something else, preoccupied with something else. Your inner world must become as vivid as your physical location in space if this work is ever going to take on its full meaning for you. In order for this work, the meaning, the real true meaning of this work to impact you fully, your internal psychological space is going to be, have to become as vivid and as real as what's going on around you right now. Now, for a lot of us, that's not a big leap because we're not that aware of what's going on around us right now. People wander around. People get hit by cars. They just, they're, they're just doing something else, thinking about something else. And they walk out in front of cars. People on the road all the time get in accidents. They actually have something on the accident reports. Now it's just a box that you have to check. Distracted driver. It's the distracted driver box. Police officers deal with distracted drivers so often that there's a box on their form that they just check. You don't even have to write it in anymore. It's no longer a write-in. So many people are out to lunch when they're driving their cars. They're somewhere else. They're distracted doing something else, reaching under, fixing the kid in the car seat in the back, doing this, putting a CD in, changing this, changing the radio station, talking on the cell phone, dialing the cell phone. They're distracted. They're not where they're supposed to be. So they call that a distracted driver. And they, they say that that is a cause of the accident. You got a distracted driver report, didn't you? Yeah. You, you bent over to pick something up that fell off the seat and ran into a car. Whoops. And what do we say? Well, that's what insurance is for. <laughs> no, insurance is for stupid. Insurance is for accidents. Awake is what the cure is for accidents. Waking up is the cure of accidents. You don't want to be under the law of accident anymore? Fine. Wake up and get yourself under better influences. Get yourself under better laws. To which eyes in you will you consent? To which eyes in you must you be extremely tactful? Which eyes will you avoid at all costs? Which eyes can you be counted on to chum with? To just end up in their presence, being negative with them, complaining with them, whining and whinging with them, without ever knowing you're doing it. Just like a tropical depression. You just slide down into it, like somebody greased the walls of it. And you just, oh, it's just so effortless. You're down in it. And then, oh, well, why bother getting up? You know, it's so muggy and sticky. It's just better just to lie down here and wait it out. And we get there, don't we? We get to places inside of ourselves where we just kind of get sucked down into this black hole, this vortex. And then we don't have the energy to get out. Where are you living in yourself at this moment? Suppose you've never worked on yourself for a week, not even a week. Suppose you've swelled internal accounts or you're full of the idea of if only. If only I'd finished school. If only I hadn't had these kids when we did, then I could have done this. If only that person had just done what I asked them to do. If only the stock market hadn't crashed. If only, if only, if only. Not a good state of mind. What kind of slum would that be? The slums of yourself is where you'll find the lowest interpretation of everything. You know these places in you. When you're in one of these places and nothing anybody says is going to satisfy you. Or it's going to satisfy you. 
but it's going to satisfy that negative part of you that loves unpleasantness, that loves feeling depressed, that loves feeling jealous, that loves feeling envious, that loves gloating, that part of you. What kind of slum would that be? Do you know your slums? You must make the effort to get out of that slum just in the same way that if you were living in a physical slum, you'd have to make an effort to get out of it. And we know that it's very difficult for people who are born and raised in slums to get out. Very difficult for them. Some never do because so much effort is involved. There's so much pulling them back. There's a ceiling that they can't seem to rise above. This is true of us. And this is why we need to observe ourselves in the proper way. The envies, jealousies, poor, mean, negative things going on in each of us. Are they slums? Everything can be taken in the heaviest, most negative way without the slightest trace of transformation. People do it every day. People take everything in the most negative, the heaviest, the most unforgiving, ungenerous ways without the slightest thought of any kind of inner transformation. Without the slightest thought of, I could be better than this. I could get myself out of this. With total, complete, absolute self-justification, this is right because these people stink. This is right because this world sucks. And so they stay in the slum. Everything, if it can be taken in the heaviest, most negative way, without the slightest trace of transformation, can also be taken in a light, positive, or simply unidentified way that leads to transformation. Because this work is about transforming one's life. That's what this work is about. Efforts that lift us above the ordinary level where it's so easy for people to live. That's what this work is about. This work is about giving us tools so that we can make the efforts that will help to lift us up out of our ordinary states where it's just so easy to live. It's so easy to turn the television on and let the sewer from the outside run to the sewer on the inside. People do it, it's three o'clock, it's time to watch blah, 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 blah. And then just go mechanically turn it on and sit in front of it and let the filth wash over them and through them. This work begins with the slums because there's something valuable there. This inner wheel turns, making more effort necessary at one point than another. You've got to know that in your own life, there are points where more effort is necessary. You can't get by with just, oh, well, I'll just not identify with that. Oh, I'll just say no to that. You can't get by with that. There are times when you have to fight for your life. There are times when you have to really struggle and make a lot of effort to pull clear and clean of the gravitational pull of the slums. We must study this turning wheel of our psychology so that we know when to be silent, when to be tactful, when to be clever, so that we're not mugged, so that we don't fall in with robber eyes that fleece us, that pick our pockets, that take every bit of worth and meaning and value that we've gotten from the work and steal it from us while we're not looking, just because we got into the wrong neighborhood. You've got something to lose now. You didn't have anything to lose before. You've got something to lose now. You know something now. You've been able to work a little bit now. You know what it's like to be more awake. When I say to Patty, yeah, that's right. No, she didn't. No, it did. no she didn't mean it, ran, it rained all the time or it rained a lot. No, she didn't mean that. She just said that. Then Patty realized right away because she has seen that she sleeps, because she knows that she sleeps. When she's reminded of that sleep, she instantly 
wakes up, thank you. And she came to herself. You know, I love that story of the prodigal son. Here he is. He's taken everything that his father gave him and he got in, got in a bad neighborhood and he lost it all. Everything's gone. He lost it all. It's all gone. Gambling, hookers, rich foods, the whole thing, you know, wasted his money, wasted the entire fortune that his father had left him. And then he's hungry and so he goes and he gets a job, but the only job he can get in this horrible neighborhood is feeding pigs. And he's so hungry that the swill, the slop that he's pouring into the pig's trough looks appetizing. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen what they feed pigs, but you got to be pretty hungry to have that be appetizing. I mean, you got to be pretty hungry for that to be appetizing. But then the story says, and he came to himself. Well, what does that mean? That is code for internal language. He came to himself. He realized that he was asleep. He realized his condition. He realized that he had a better place that he could be. He came to himself. He realized, I could be in a better place than this. I don't have to be wallowing with pigs and, 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 and wanting to eat what I'm feeding them. I can be a servant in my father's house and live better than this. I love that story. Such a great story because it's our story. Dead, negative food will not make transformation possible in our being. You are what you eat. Dead, negative food will not make transformation possible in your being. You've got to have better food. You've got to breathe better air. You've got to live in better neighborhoods. You can do this. We can always work. We can go into another part of our psychological country if we observe and separate from typical eyes. What are typical eyes? The typical eyes are the, the eyes that you go with typically. The eyes that get you in the slums typically. The eyes that drag you down typically. Oh, here we are again. No, here we are still. And that's the truth about us. Here we are still. And occasionally we get out. We can work. Thank you for listening. James World is sponsored by Solid Rock Vista. For more information, visit SolidRockVista.com.